I am Alon Ben Mir, and welcome to another episode of On the Issues. My guest today is Andrew Tabler, the Martin J. Gross Fellow in the Program on Arab Politics at the Washington Institute, where he focuses on Syria and the United States policy in the Levant. You can find his full bio on the page for this episode. Now, I want to start with Syria with you because, you know, after all, you have the Syrian expert. I want to take you back to, let me see, when Olmert was the prime minister, about the mid, mid, midterm mm -hmm. when he was prime minister. The then Walid Muallem, mm -hmm. he was ambassador here. We got to know each other. I almost see him, saw him every almost every mm -hmm. week. He would call me, Alon, let's come mm -hmm. and let's talk. And we would talk. Finally, one day he came to the United Nations and he got Ahmad Mustafa with him, Jaffari, mm -hmm. sure. and the military attaché came and he said, Alon, our, our president wants to make peace with Israel. So I, I'm telling you the story mm -hmm. for a reason, and I'll come to sure. it in a moment. And we are thinking of mediator. We are thinking of Spain, and we're thinking of Turkey. And I immediately said, why are you thinking of Spain? Turkey has different kind of interests, has a great deal of interest in Syria. It's neighboring of Syria. It's a good relationship at the time was with Israel. Turkey is the one, and moreover, I know that the Turkish scene very, very well. David Dolo was a friend of mine, still is, but he's not in power. <laughs> 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 and so I immediately, next day, you know, I wanted him to give me some kind of piece of paper that to see some, real point that came from them. I flew next day to Soturbovich, who is assistant to national security advisor for, no, Ilan Mizrahi was national security mm -hmm. advisor, but Turbovich was his right, mm -hmm. and you know, right arm. Mm -hmm. And I told him this is the story, and he took it very seriously. Next day he spoke to Almert, and he came back, called me back, he said, it's a go. Go to Turkey, and that's what happened. When the negotiations started, and I sort of stepped back, but once in a while they would call me and I would go and mm -hmm. hear what is going on. One thing that was very interesting, and I was wondering why the United States did not think in those terms. I was told by Walid Moala, something very interesting. He said to me, Aaron, we wanted to know, I wanted to know how my president think. I said, how does he think? He said he was indoctrinated before his father died, for the last two or three years before his father died. After the, his basil had the accident, and his mm -hmm. older, sure. which, which he was a groom. In the, in the 90s. In yeah. the 90s. He was a groom to succeed mm -hmm. his father. When he had the accident, half of the Assad had no choice but to turn to, his, to Bashar, who, who was a naive, he knew nothing about international mm -hmm. relations, certainly not, not involved, as you well know. He said to me, he inherited seven critical points from his father. I said, what are they? He said, number one, his father told him, you have Russia and you have Iran. Stick to them because they have interest in Syria and they will never abandon you. That's not going back, you know how many years I'm talking sure. about. Yeah. If there's any kind of uprising, if any kind of resistance, crush it. Just like I did in Hama. Don't challenge Israel. You will lose the war. You will lose your shirt. Reach out. 
reach out and make peace. So, I mean, I want to mention mm -hmm. to you these three sig mm -hmm. most significant issues. The question is for my, when, when I was thinking, I was telling me this, why the United States, we, that is the American intelligence, why didn't we do our homework? Where this guy's coming from? How is he thinking? Why is he thinking the way he was thinking? Mm -hmm. And when there, this peaceful demonstration took place, well, obviously, he, he met it with force. Right. And we still misassessed how far he would be able to, he would, he would go. I never really thought in terms of what his father basically indoctrinated him mm -hmm. to a point where you will never give up. You've got to fight to the last soldier. Right, right. Now, your, what's your take? So the difference between Hafez al-Assad and Bashar al-Assad, which is sort of at the core of this discussion, uh, is that um, Hafez al-Assad built the regime and came up through the system and was obviously a very intelligent but brutal man. Right? Brutal, very yeah. brutal. But, but, yeah. but, but, very, but very intelligent. And uh, those that negotiated with him told me that he would, when you had a meeting with him, he would very seldomly say yes to anything. Like Japanese. Right. But, I mean, say no. I mean, right. Japanese will not say no. Well, but, <laughs> but, when they, but when he did say yes, you could build a policy around it. Yeah. Bashar had a problem from the beginning, and this was something that has never been solved. He would say almost yes to anything. He would go in, and we'd start talking, and say yes, yes, yes. But the problem was, after you left the room, after these diplomats left the room, he would, the next week, do the opposite sometimes. Oftentimes, we do the opposite. So the problem was the utility of engaging with Bashar went down because of issues of integrity. Now, the question is why? Um, is it because he was new? Yes, that probably... I think, I think he, oh, you're right. I, think, I don't think he was sure of himself for a while. Right. Not just the first or, or first or two right. years. But as time went on, that, that dynamic didn't really change, right? And then in the end, I think, with the uprising, it showed that he is very much like his father, a brutal dictator. He will do whatever it takes to hold on. The question is, how do you really deal with this? The thinking at the time, getting to the Israeli-Syrian uh, uh, outreach, as you know, was it was nominally about the Golan and peace, but it was larger than that, right? It was about Syria's relationship with Iran. And with the rest of the Arab world. Correct. Yes. They wanted to bring and to keep Syria in the Arab fold, right? Because it's a majority Arab country. It's surrounded by Arab countries, particularly from the south. So they wanted to keep it. The problem was, though, as you, as you pointed out, that over time, the Assad regime came to rely on Iran more because they were willing to put in the money, the investments, the uh, material, and then in the end, now Shia militia, in such numbers that they became very important to maintaining the way Bashar ruled Syria. So Absolutely. And, and yeah. I think this, yeah. is, this is where um, it became difficult because Bashar, I think, would have benefited from peace, but the problem was making the, the hard break with the Iranians, even a soft break over time, I think it would have been hard, and I think people were skeptical about it. Whether it was because they saw things on the satellite photos that we didn't see, or was it because of Bashar's integrity issues, I don't know, but things didn't happen. Well, let me tell you what I know Okay. at that point. So the negotiations were taking place in Ankara. Right. 
and uh, Omer there one couple few times, and there was near agreement. What point was the Syrian were demanding what they call leg in the water? Right, sure. They wanted, and and Omer insisted that's not going to happen. They got to put back to the mountain about right. five hundred meters or something like that. They agreed to that, but in their agreement, they're saying. We want to go back to precisely to the border before. That will be the agreement. And, but this will be a sort of a buffer zone, this 500 meter mm -hmm. along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Right. You know? And they agreed to that. Erdogan at the time, now I wasn't there. I was there. And David Dollar was sitting there. And he said to me, Avon, we have an agreement. So Erdogan turned to, to Omer and said, I want to call Bashar and tell him, we have an agreement. And Almer said to him, no, just wait. I'm going back. We'll have a cabinet meeting on Sunday. Right. And I will call you back Monday the latest. And it's a deal. Tuesday, Israel invaded Gaza. Ah, I see. Okay. Right. right. Now, I was still in Ankara at the time. And I did not see Erdogan that time. But David Dollar called me and said, Alon, he used any kind of language you can imagine. <laughs> what happened? I said, how do I know? I wasn't sitting in the car. I don't know. Which I really knew. I mean, why did Omer make that kind of move after all of these massive errors? For Erdogan, that was the biggest slap in the face you can possibly imagine. Right. Well, you know who was Erdogan. That's what I know. I witnessed. Well, that's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I can. I, well, it's true because... A lot of, I think oftentimes, the negotiations between Syria and Israel were always affected by other issues. And of course, the Gaza operation at that time did affect um, that. Because once you have a government that's pointed in one direction, you know, uh, governments can only deal with, with one crisis at a time, really, or maybe two. So I think, and I understand that. But the negotiations did continue, did they not? No, after, after, after that, they were... It stopped. But remember, then Hamas had his, their headquarters still in Syria. Correct, um, yes. They were, the relationship was extremely close between the two. Of course, they have mutual interest. There's no love affair between the two sides. Right. But that happened when actually Hamas was still very active. In the, his headquarters was in Syria. That's why they were getting the money, the support coming from Iran to Syria, to, right. to Hamas. So for, for Bashar Assad and for Erdogan, who were, as you know, very close friends at the time. Right. Very, sure. very close friends. That was the biggest slap in the face. Sure. And Bashar Assad was saying, how come they don't trust me? Did we ever violate the 1974 disengagement agreement? Not once. He said, if we don't, if we don't keep our word, our word is our, our, you know, that's what we're bound for. We don't need to write papers. What happened since 1974? There was one incident, and it wasn't even deliberate. Somebody right. infiltrated right. Through, from one side of the Quran to the other to the Israeli side. So that is what actually happened. And from that on, of course, then the Mamara event, and then take, oh, yeah. take it from there. Yeah, there, there, and that's why he made such a big deal of the Mamara event. There have been, time, from time to time, opportunities. A lot of times now, I think the, the difficulty is now we're in a different ball game, so to speak, right? Because that was back when Syria was stable and you had... Yeah, now, well, now it's changed. It's changed. And I think also the degree of Iranian involvement's changed. 
So it it was a, you know, I think these opportunities for peace, you know, like a stopped clock, line up, uh, to, you know, <laughs> twice a day. And uh, if you miss that sweet spot, and it sounds like uh, what you're describing here was an opportunity, then um, you have to wait, you know, the rest of the day, another 12 hours until it comes around. Yeah. And um, I think the, you know, the problem... Uh, but you knew, I mean, I'm sure you knew about these negotiations. I did know about the negotiations. Yeah. In fact, I was in um, Ankara at a time when you were probably there. Um, because I was completely hidden. Hidden. Yeah, because I was there when there was a conference put on by USAC, the think tank that was mostly populated by ex-foreign ministry folks. And they had a joint uh, meeting with uh, a lot of Israeli uh, security officials, and I was able to attend. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I, I knew that something was up. Um, obviously, because there, we wouldn't have all these people here in Lhasa. And I just happened to be in Ankara, and I was following it. At that time, and that would have been what year? Let's think about that now. 2009? Uh, 2009. 2009. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. you know, after that, you're right, you know, we got, there was a Gaza operation. There were continued um, efforts to get the two sides to the table, uh, you know, by the U.S. By the U.S., but it was still really to no avail. Yeah, uh, it was really to no, because by the time you know Assad was uh, under tremendous pressure, not to show that after Gaza, he is going now. He's ready and willing and able to sit yeah. down and restore business as usual. That wasn't going to do, happen. Do you know there was one thing that he did that Bashar did? Maybe it was in response to this. Probably collectively was in response. When um, in 2010, I believe it was in 2010, yeah, the spring, I think, according to reports, U.S. Um, satellite photography caught the Syrians transferring a couple of Scud missiles to Hezbollah in Lebanon. That was just dumb on a number of levels, right? Because it, it undermined things. You know, Hafez al-Assad was always a master at keeping, making himself relevant by denying the flow of weapons across the border into Lebanon, right? That was yeah. one of the reasons why you negotiated with Hafez al-Assad, not just the Golan, that was a piece of land, it was the, the weapons flow. When you start giving strategic weapons to a U.S.-designated terrorist organization, it's bad enough, but, but, but they, you take yourself out of the equation, right? You, you, you make yourself less relevant. And it was, I think it was, the report was it was only two, but still that... I think that was not a smart move. I, I, that I think was after the breakdown. That was after the breakdown. But this yeah. is what happened. You're absolutely right. Then the Iranian, basically, they, get, they have now an argument to make. Right. Look what happened. You can't trust the Israeli. Right. And they put huge pressure on him to continue to support Hezbollah. And that's exactly what been Okay, doing. interesting. This is, what ha this is exactly what happened. Yeah. So because, it, you see, we've been telling you all along, you can trust the Israelis, don't deal with the Israelis. Look how they betray you. Right. Yeah, I, I, uh, that was when Iran, you know, Iran began to step in to fill the, uh, the vacuum in Damascus. The other thing about Iranian support is the type of support that Iran provided to Bashar it was the kind of support that Bashar needed to continue the way he ruled. So it was a bit like um, uh, instead of sending someone to rehab, uh, or in this case as a metaphor for reform, 
you just continue to give them something to drink to keep them going. And I think that must have been very compelling to Bashar because he did have a problem reforming. He had a problem controlling the system. He had economic problems, obviously. We know that now uh, much more. He had a problem. How do you open up an economy at the same time you're trying to control it? So he, he the Iranian presence, unfortunately, that, that offer became palatable and necessary, I think, in that context and led led Syria and the regime down that road. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, initially, I'm sure you know, you remember, you know, perhaps um, uh, when he came in, I mean, he had some ideas to do, introduce some reforms. He did. He wanted to have some reforms. He, I think. But he was opposed, you know, by the the leadership of the Ba'ath Party. There, were, there was opposition. And from, the military. There was. And then I think after that, he just, some of the problem was also that he himself became skeptical about the ability of the regime to reform, mm -hmm. and which is a sensible thing because it's a clientelist, clientelistic, of course, you yeah, know, uh, yeah. regime that the I, I think the thing that I learned the most out of living in Syria was what the word tyranny really means, right? Okay, so when I was growing up, you would you would read all of the founding fathers in their writings and so on when you're in elementary school, and middle school, and high school. And you would read about tyranny, and you would like you'd look up the word because you didn't even know what it was. <laughs> but you know, I would look. So, I, so I knew what it meant in the abstract, right? Uh -huh. But when you go and you live in a place like Syria, um, at that time, the word tyranny was being used by the Bush administration for rhetorical purposes, right? But as I lived in Syria longer, it was during the Bush administration, I began to understand what tyranny was all about, right? And it was about absolute power, right? Unrestricted. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And the way this works, right? Because it's, it's actually, tyranny is, is an incredibly resilient thing until it's broken. Right? Yeah. And it's a very effective way, but a very brutal way of ruling. And what I learned over time was, in the end, laws didn't matter in Syria. This is what's made Syria different than, you know, I lived in Egypt, I lived in Turkey, I lived in you know, Jordan, and you know, in Israel, and the Gulf, and so on. In those countries, Yes, there's corruption. Yes, there are problems, but there is law. Okay, there's a Somebody, law there. Yes, yeah, yes, it's, yes. there's there's something to it, right? Yeah. In Syria, there was no law. There were only envelopes in which people would put stacks of Ben Franklins, and <laughs> you would simply pay off someone who was in the security services. Now, I didn't have to do this because I was a foreigner, but all my Syrian friends had to do this in order to make things legal or okay. Oh, yeah. yeah How do yeah, you yeah. tell someone who's a security officer or security general... We're going to reform, and you're not going to receive your thousands of dollars in envelopes every day anymore. You're going to have to accept $500 from the Syrian yeah, state. It seems, you know, the corruption went all the way Correct. through the whole, every strata of, uh, you know, social strata. There's no question about it. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, so I was discussing some of the, these elements yesterday with Fred. And, I mean, from your perspective, I mean, I have my, my take why President Obama not take the kind of steps necessary. I still believe how we established a no-fly zone then, when Turkey is actually was hammering, we have to do it, we have to do it. It might have worked. We probably could have avoided this entire uh, refugee uh, crisis. Do you buy into that argument? I, I personally believe that would have been, sh should have been the case. However, complicated it might have been. Before the Russian got so deeply involved, uh, we would have had only basically to deal with the Syrian Air Force. Right. 
why do you feel, why do you know, why do you think that Obama did not go for that, which made a lot of sense, at least at the time? So what we can glean from Obama's interviews and what, you know, what made President Obama unusual is that he gave very candid interviews about his thoughts on this before he left office. Uh, Jeffrey Goldberg interview. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Which is, frankly, that's an interview that you should give after you leave office, not in the last year, right? Yeah, because yeah. he was talking about his moment of liberation. That's what Jeffrey Goldberg called it. He didn't yeah. use it. From the, the foreign policy establishment, right? And um, so I think it's very clear in there. You can see he overlearned the lessons of Iraq too much. He thought that we, he, he believed in this mantra that we make things worse, not better. But I think the problem was, in that regard, he, he missed the point that the Iraq war was about the United States invading the country and knocking out the regime and then doing a horrible job of trying to stabilize the country. In the case of Syria, the regime was falling for different reasons. We, we, we didn't intervene in Syria. We did not send troops until special forces were sent years later. Basically going to save or to stop the potential right. this, this destruction right. of the state. So there were two different yeah. things, but he, he thought they were the same. I think he thought they were the same thing. And um, there were a lot of people around him who felt the same way uh, in, the, in, in the government. Um, and they had a similar mindset. So that's one thing. Second, I think that was for the early part, rather, of the war, uh, the initial uprising. Uh, and then up until uh, 2012, that's when you see the red line being mm -hmm. laid yeah. and also the decision not to arm the Syrian opposition. So the question is, what happened in 2013? Well, what happened in 2013 was the Syria conflict was no longer about Syria. You know, ultimately, we had the red line. It uh, was violated scores of times before the Rota incident well, in, in, course, in the, yeah, in the, in the yeah. summer of 20, yeah. 2013. Yeah. And President Obama did nothing to prepare the American people for the fact that Bashar had gone over the red line about 10 months before that incident. It was in lower concentration. Mm -hmm. but, mm -hmm. So why didn't he do that? Well, what we didn't know at the time, but that we do know now, is that there were negotiations going on with the Iranians over their nuclear program. And this was a major rebalancing with Iran and bringing it back into the region was a strategic uh, goal of the administration, and particularly of President Obama. He called it many things, geopolitical equilibrium. Uh, he called it offshore rebalancing. Yeah, but at what cost? I mean, I don't think they were able to sit down and measure the cost involved. They weren't. And along, both short term, but mostly long term cost. Correct. For the United States. That's but go ahead. I no, I, I, I absolutely agree with you. There was the issue of the cost. It would come to the United States, which ultimately now we're understanding the beginning of it. Yes, yes. But there was also, I think, the way it worked in the process was the U.S. didn't intervene to enforce the red line, very famously, and to back the rebels. And the question is whether that was because the Obama administration thought it would end the talks with the Iranians. Now, it might have, but the flip side of that was the covert support to the rebels continued and even increased in some ways so that it became also an instrument for bleeding the Iranians as well in the process. So 
as these negotiations were going forward, and I was speaking with people in the government, they said, look, the Iranian nuclear negotiations and Syria are separate things, but they weren't separate things. They insisted that they were. I think what, what happened then is after you had the nuclear agreement, it was after that point that the Obama administration became adamant about not intervening in Syria, not doing more in Syria. Which it should have been the opposite, they right. might say. Right, because no. they, and this is something that, look, I'm not, an, I'm not an expert on these agreements. I'm not an expert on nuclear programs or anything. But I know enough from life in the Middle East. There are agreements, and then there are the issues that are baked into the agreement, okay? If you notice, we have Iranian-backed militia running all over Syria. And as far as I can tell, U.S. officials have said only one or two things about it for the last couple of years. This is true. Yeah. And this is strange yeah. to me because yeah. it's one thing to say eventually you can get the Iranians to reform and change their posture and go in a different direction, right? But it's another thing to say, uh, we know Hezbollah is running all over Syria and shooting Syrians, but we're not going to say anything about it. Because, you know, Hezbollah and Iran are related things, but Hezbollah as an organization has a history with the United States. And Iran as a changing body has a possible future. But these two things are very different. We should treat them differently. Yeah, but that was an artificial sort of division. I mean, you know they were very much linked. That is Iran, Hezbollah, Syria. You couldn't possibly, if you are negotiating, and my understanding was this, I don't believe that Obama understood one thing, that unless the United States take a specific position as the foremost global leader, that if we don't provide some kind of direction, some kind of real input, it's going to get out of hand, out of control. I think he never understood that America, whether we like it or not, we have a responsibility because nobody else is going to do take another initiative, perhaps only the Russian, who thought there was mm -hmm. a gap. Let's go and fill in the gap right. because this president is not going to do anything about it. No, no, absolutely. And so one of the things I do besides deal with Syria is I spend a lot of time engaging the Russians on Syria and other, other matters. So I go to their annual security conference for the Ministry of Defense in Moscow once a year, and I have other interviews and, and FaceTime. And what I can tell you is the intervention we saw in Syria in the fall of 2015, that policy had been building for years. Yeah. I don't know why we didn't see it coming because I had gone, even before the invasion, I had come back from Moscow, gone over to see my friend uh, Rob Malley in the White House and he and his staff and said, look, I was in Moscow. They're saying the following things. And what I found very interesting was even after the Russians came into Syria and started their uh, operations, the White House was still say, was still poo-pooing it like, oh, it's a quagmire. It's not going to be that exactly. consequential. You know, they equate that to Afghanistan. I don't know yeah. what they were thinking. And I'm like, why? It doesn't seem like. And let's just look at this. What did the Russians do? They intervened in Syria with a relatively light footprint. It cost them not that much money a day. They run it out of their training budget and they, they keep it mostly to aerial operations with some special forces. And yeah. They were able to intervene with relatively little cost and look what they were able to do. And so actually in the end, it wasn't a quagmire for them, at least so far. 
And the Russians are also smart. You can say what you want about them, but they're very smart in that they know that they don't want to send all these troops into Syria, right? They're not going to get stuck on the slippery slope. And then we should have learned from the experience in Afghanistan. They themselves came to the conclusion, this is not winnable. Correct. They decided to withdraw Correct. on their own. Right. I mean, that should have been a lesson that, in, that Russia, Putin, was not going... I, I think, yes, and I think it's because in our political system, we lurch from one set of memes to another set of memes every four or eight years, right? And one of the memes of President Obama was, we make it worse, it's a slippery slope. Uh, yeah. And yeah. I always felt this was really strange. This is a point you know Fred Hoff makes very well, but we all knew this. President Obama railed against those that wanted intervention in Syria, and he often railed against an argument that we never made. He said that the argument for intervention was something like the Iraq War or World War II or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know anyone. I don't know anyone who ever said, let's invade Syria. I, I, I still haven't met anyone who said, let's invade Syria. And so for me, it's confusing. But, but he also surrounded himself, I mean, Rice and the others, with the exception of defense, uh, the two defense mm -hmm. ministers at the time, Gates and uh, Fenelli. Yeah. They, they were much more aggressive in terms of what to do, with, specifically Gates. Right. In the first term, during right. the first term, you know, with Hillary Clinton and... Um, uh, but he did not listen. No. He turned them down. In fact, I understand was the first time the entire National Security Council, we have five, six people mm -hmm. involved in this, agreed unanimously, you've got to do something Correct. about Syria. And he turned, and he would not listen to their right. advice. Uh, I asked also Fred yesterday about it. Where do we go from here? I mean, now we know the situation in Syria. What can be done? That is, A, what the United States can I mean, I have my own prescription of sort. I'm not sure. But I'd like to hear from you, Rada. Uh, wh uh, wh what would you do? This President Bush, as I'm Bush, President, uh, I can't even say it yet. <laughs> you know, I have difficulty saying President Trump. I'm not kidding. <laughs> what, would, what, would, what, what would I do in the Middle what East? What would you tell President Trump? Let's put it this way. Oh, oh okay. So, um, and I'm just... Uh, you know, rattling off things that I've written. Uh, so I think the most important thing to understand is the situation that's going on on the physical plane of reality, okay? So I always thought policy was about what is going on on the physical plane of reality with an eye towards what, what can be, but it's not. It's about right. what can be with an eye towards what is. So yeah. how do you come up with a good policy um, and what causes politicians to pay attention to reality. And I think it's a situation like we have in Syria, and it's as follows. We have a situation now akin to uh, Iraq in the 1990s, but the regime in Syria is much weaker than Saddam's regime was. That's as right. you know, That's right, uh, Saddam's, Saddam uh, was able to project his military power uh, over large swaths of Iraqi territory, um, even after we set up uh, op air operations and exclusion zones, even then Saddam's forces had a lot of influence on the ground. Bashar only controls one-third of Syrian territory, 60% of the population. Right? Mm -hmm. So that means two-thirds of Syrian territory and 40% of the population, roughly, is outside of the state's control. Because of his inability to reform and the death tolls on the regime side, 
he has depleted deployable manpower, only about twenty to 25,000 deployable troops mm-hmm. to go into new areas and to take right. them and hold them. So he does not have the forces to retake every inch of Syrian well, territory. I mean, doesn't he have also to maintain significant force to protect Damascus? Correct. I mean, that's, that was a big thing. Right. So what this means is, to do that, the timeline for him to retake the rest of the country is in years and would require many more Shia militia. I'm not sure it's even possible at this point. I think it would be very difficult. But the only thing we can do is, as the United States, we need to look at that and say, okay, so two-thirds of Syrian territory is outside of the government's control. What do we do? Well, we have two things coming out of these areas, right? Uh, We have extremists, which have set up in many of these areas uh, outside of government control. Uh, And we have uh, humanitarian suffering, and we have migration flows as a result. So it's in that light that you can understand that safe zones become important. And it's no wonder, and I think it's actually a good sign, that... Uh, They're talking about it now. President Trump talked yeah, about it yesterday. About yes, yesterday. and yeah. this is not a. This yeah. is not. Yeah. In my mind, this is a good sign in that it recognizes that, in order to deal with terrorism, in order to deal with migrants, you need to be able to do more inside of Syria. You need to do more in neighboring countries to to help protect people and to keep them from having to run to Europe and elsewhere to destabilize those areas to create more suffering. So there's lots of things you can do, but you have to become more willing to back either directly militarily involved or neighboring countries. Our best bet is through neighboring countries, Turkey, Jordan, Jordan, working with the Kurds. But that that was a plan that President Obama would not do. Are they going to be perfect safe zones? Probably not. They seem, I think they're going to be designed differently than we saw in the Balkans. Um, Of course, the designs in the Balkans also had their own problems, right? So I think that's very important. That's one layer. The second layer is, it seems as if there's going to be an outreach to the Russians to try to see what is possible. This is normal for American presidents to... to, Oh, no question. I mean, listen, they are a player. Whether we like it or not, they're a player. So do the Iranians. I don't think any kind of solution can be found unless these two powers are part and parcel of such a solution. They're going to happen. Right. So I think in that, in that, So they need to bargain hard with the Russians, see what's possible, see what can be agreed. And I think they're going to do that. They'll come up with, who knows. The third is, it's very important to send a message to the regime that things are not going to go back to the way they were before. The piles of bodies are too high, and the degree of destruction is too much, and the degree of foreign involvement in the country is too much, that that we're going to have to deal with a new situation. And it's going to be hard. It's difficult for me to predict the future, but in a way, in order to deal with the the terrorist threats, the migrant threats, the humanitarian situation, all these horrible things, we're going to have to deal with a Syria that is, for all intents and purposes, de facto partitioned. Oh, yeah. I think it has disintegrated. In my view, I use the word disintegrated rather than just being partitioned. Right. And it's impossible, and at least I think it's to just restore the status quo ante because now you have groups who no longer want to relate to the, any central government. The Kurds are one, uh, the Christians, sure. for that matter. And then, then you have the majority Sunnis who suffer the most. Right. So we have, I think that that's what I would recommend. I've recommended it in, in writing in, uh, in, in publications. Um, I think that there are good signs we've seen so far in terms of 
uh, Trump's appointments to dealing with the Middle East, but we don't we don't see all of them. We'll have to wait and see. The most important thing for all of us, and I think this is the one thing that um, certainly I learned from this election cycle, and I think everybody else does. The most important thing is we we continue to do our jobs the best we can, and we try to deal with that physical plane of reality as best we can. Stop dealing in memes. Uh, I don't want to go from uh, one set of memes of uh, to, to another set. Absolutely. And I think this is this is a lesson that I think particularly President Obama taught me that sometimes you can overlearn the lessons of something and you end up in a equally horrible situation. So uh, that, that that's uh, yeah you're right you're right and then you know even realizing or facing the failure they they, they made every effort to try to explain it. Rather than say that was a mistake, let's say corrective it, measure. They were not. They just didn't admit that they. Didn't want to admit yeah. it. No, they explained it. You know, they, this is. They were right. still right. Right. As of few weeks right. ago, Susan Rice and what's his name? Um, uh, there was another top official uh, in the administration who were trying to justify. Oh, the ambassador to the UN. She too was saying. This is what we did. This is rationale, and would never admit that it was a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> so that's all the time I have today. No, we we done. I, I want to thank you so much. No, no, no. Thank you for listening to this episode on the issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page, and stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.